Hello. I can see Paul. I can see Colin. I can't see John or Patrick. I think they're coming in, but we can't see you. Are you doing this incognito? No, I'm fully dressed and decent. <laughs> Here I am. Are you all joining in this? Is it a free-for-all? I'm supposed to be in charge, but I've never been in charge of a... Anything. ...a biz up in a brewery, let alone a distinguished podcast like this. Are there any other Fulham supporters there or not? No, just the two of us. John's Leicester and Colin's Man City. Paul's Watford, but he keeps out of the discussion because he's the producer. Inarticulate. Inarticulate. Oh. And in fact, oh. I'm going to mute myself for now. This is rather like okay. being in front of a jury. <laughs> Anything but. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Football Ruined My Life. I'm Patrick Barclay, and I'm hosting this episode because, although the club deepest in my heart is Dundee, I do live in southwest London, and I've got a season ticket in the Johnny Haynes Upper at Craven Cottage. Today's flavour is very Fulhamish. Don't worry, our regular host and spiritual leader, Colin Schindler, is still with us, but he's letting me introduce our distinguished guest today, because, like me, in football terms, this gentleman lives by the river. He is, of course, David Hamilton, surely one of the most popular and durable broadcasters of our lifetimes. It was as far back as 1959 when Stan Cullis's Wolves were champions that David made his radio debut while doing national service. On this experience, he built a career in both radio and television whose surface we simply haven't enough time even to scratch. Suffice it to say that in the decades leading to his current lunchtime gig at Boom Radio, David has worked alongside the likes of Tommy Cooper, Benny Hill, his great friend, Ken Dodd, the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones, and proof that even now his star continues to rise and rise is his presence here today alongside Colin Schindler and our other regular panellist, the eminence grease of football in Leicester and far beyond, John Holmes. David, welcome to Football Ruined My Life. What's a love of Fulham Football Club done for your life? Well, it's been very Fulhamish. That's the word that they use down by the river. There have been the ups and downs, lots of maybes, lots of times when we thought we were going to win something, like the cup final in 1975, where we were absolutely brilliant through all the rounds, won everything away from home, not a single match at home to get to Wembley, and so many replays. I think we played Hull City four times. Used to go on until they got a result. You didn't have penalty shootouts and things like that. So it was quite a marathon getting there. And then on the day, unfortunately, we got beaten by West Ham. I'll tell you an interesting thing about the cup final in 1975. West Ham, 11 English players. Fulham, 10 English players and one Irish. How the game has changed. Who was the Irishman? Jimmy Conway. Jimmy Conway. Yes, you're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. And you've seen some great, uh, would the Juventus home game in the... I don't even know which year, but what a game that was. Yes, that was on the run to Hamburg when we got to the Europa final and Clint Dempsey scored the winning goal in the 82nd minute in front mm. of the Hammersmith end. Mm. And I actually had goosebumps on my goosebumps. I've never <laughs> heard 
a reaction from the crowd like it. And you have to remember that I remember the days when we got beaten by Hayes in the FA Cup in front of 4,000 people and we made our way home in the rain, a very bedraggled bunch of Fulham supporters. And a club very nearly went out of existence. There were a lot of fears that there were chairmen. There was at least one chairman who planned to build flats on that wonderful ground at Craven Cottage on the yeah. river. Imagine yeah. what that would be worth to a property tycoon. And it came very close to that. And it was only Mohammed Al-Fayed who came in and saved the club. He was a very popular chairman, actually, despite the fact that he split opinion outside the walls of Craven Cottage. He was popular, so popular inside that the crowd didn't mind too much when he built a statue of Michael Jackson. Do you remember that? Well, I introduced Michael Jackson to the crowd when he came to the match. I was the match day MC at the time, and he came out. It was a really hot, sunny day. He had a black and white umbrella over his head, full of umbrella, and he looked about six stone dripping wet, and he walked halfway round the ground to what I can only describe as polite applause. Uh, because... <laughs> <laughs> They'd never seen a star like that. You know, the nearest they had was Hugh Grant. They thought it was a lookalike. They had so many gags and things that happened at Fulham on the pitch at half time at that time. You know, pantomime dames came on, and now it's Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. And he suddenly got to the Haynes stand where you sit now. And yeah. suddenly the crowd realised it was the Michael Jackson. And, and now we you know, burst into tumultuous applause. And he, he enjoyed it so much, he later went to a game at Exeter as well. You mentioned that you were the stadium, the MC. Certainly when I first started going, you were sort of, I don't take this the wrong way, but a part of the furniture, a part of the match day experience. Why did you stop doing that? Well, I did it for 18 years. And by yeah. the time I finished, I was nearer 80 than 70. And I was starting to freeze my nuts off on the, yeah. the touchline and the fourth official's dugout. The other thing was as well that all the fun had gone out of it. When I did it in the early days, you could inject some humour into it. I remember yeah. Simon Morgan's testimonial. Do you remember Simon? Played for Leicester before. That's right. We got him from Leicester where he'd yeah. been very, very injury prone. But despite that, we signed him and he became a wonderful servant. Anyway, Simon, his final season, he had more injuries and he didn't play much. But he came on the last match of the season against Wolves for 15 minutes. I introduced him as a substitute. Coming on now, number so and so, Simon Morgan. And out he came. At that particular time, we used to have a man of the match, and it was always picked by the corporate people, the sponsors, who hadn't got the first clue. And I would be given yeah. this piece of paper, and it would say, that I think, oh, my God, you know, are they watching the same game? I can't read this out. This is embarrassing. Anyway, on the last match, uh, Simon came on for 15 minutes. All he did in that time was he took a throw-in, and I made him the man of the match. <laughs> <laughs> and the place erupted. Simon doubled up with laughter. If I did that now, it probably would be a sackable offence. Yeah, the sense of humour does seem to have departed the modern scene. Before I throw it open to Colin and John, I just want to ask you one thing, David. You talked with great erudition of the old days in the Cup final in 1975 and so on. Hmm. And I mentioned the Europa League run in... Yes. And I can't even remember which year it was. About eight or nine years ago, I think. It was eight or nine years ago. I ended up with you, I'm sure, in Hamburg for the final. Well, we ran them close, I think. But do you find that your enjoyment of 
football. I mean, Colin pines for the old Manchester City. He, he doesn't care that he wins about four trophies a year because he pines for the old Manchester City. Is there a bit of that in you? Sentimentality well, for very the much so for me because at Fulham, I got to know a lot of the players very well, like Simon Morgan and some of his contemporaries. And of course, before that, people like Alan Mallory and George mm. Cohen, I used to host one of the lounges with Gentleman George. What a gentleman mm. he was. Yeah. He could read the game like, like nobody else. And I, I just learned so much about football from working with him. I went sadly went to his funeral in Tunbridge Wells a year ago. But Gentleman George and Les Strong and, you know, these became pals of mine. And sometimes after the match, I would finish up at a bar in the Fulham Road with Big Jim Stannard and Terry Herlock. You know, and we'd, we'd be knocking pints back in the Fulham Road. And nobody would speak out of turn to you, David, if you were with those. Well, I didn't argue with either of those two, that's for sure. <laughs> Jim was a bit bigger than Terry, but nobody argued with Terry either. But those days are gone now. I mean, players probably don't drink now. And they don't. Mm. It, drink is not relevant. It's just the socialising. And you see players coming off coaches with headphones on on their mobile phones not even talking to the supporters so the mm. gap between the players and the supporters has become enormous so i think the fun has gone out of it the humor has all all humor has gone out of football getting to know the players and socializing with them has gone and the game has become really so much now about business mm. sad what do you think colin does that ring a bell with you Yes, well, David's saying words that chime loud bells in my mind. Let's take it back. My first memories of Fulham is just after the Munich air crash. Of course, it was a Fulham Cup run that year, and mm. they played Manchester United in a semi-final. It went to a replay. It was some huge 5-3 win for United, I think, at the end. I have a strange recollection that that was shown on television as yes, well. Yes, that's why I remember it so well. But they had a collection of players, Tony Macedo from Gibraltar in goal and Tosh Chamberlain on the left wing. And I don't know if Jimmy Hill was still there, give it to the rabbi, but certainly the man that we're all going to talk about now because he made such an impact on all our memories was the greatest passer in the English game, was Johnny yes. Haynes. And I know everybody else has memories of Haynes, but I share them. Yeah, they had some wonderful players, Fulham, without achieving very much. Johnny Haynes used to get very frustrated with his colleagues, mostly with Tosh. He'd throw his hands up in the air and say, do you call that a pass? But I got to know <laughs> Tosh very well. And when Tosh retired, he played on a charity team called the Happy Wanderers, which was sort of Fulham supporters. And I played with Tosh. And what a character he was. He had a kick like a mule. And when he kicked the ball, it either virtually took the net out or it finished up in the Thames. You know, he was slightly erratic, but he was a great character, Tosh. And before the match, you know, had a different pre-match warm-up in those days. They, If you remember, because I think we're all old enough to remember this, they just came out and kicked about for five minutes, you know, had a few shots at the goalkeeper. And Tosh came out with a fag in his hand. And he smoked a, smoked a cigarette. That side from that era, you had Graham Leggett playing. You had a fullback called Jimmy Langley, was it? Yeah. Yep. And Maurice Cook was another... I remember from that era. Yeah, he finished up running a pub in somewhere like Aylesbury, I think, Maurice Cook. So that's what players did in those days. Correct. And Freddie Callahan, who was our great fullback, he was known as the Tank. We have wonderful characters at Fulham down the years. I mean, you mentioned Jimmy Hill, who did so yes, much for, yes. for football. You know, three points for a win and the first £100-a-week player, who mm. was uh, the man you were talking about earlier, Johnny Haynes. Yeah. Would Johnny have been the best footballer you ever saw in a Fulham shirt? 
Yes, probably. I mean, we saw some greats. We saw Bobby Moore, of course, at the end of his career. Mm -hmm. My favourite player was Les Barrett. I don't oh, know yes. whether you remember him. He played in the yes. cup final at 75, and he was a traditional winger. When I played for the Showbiz 11 in charity matches, I tried to emulate Les Barrett rather badly, of course. But Les Barrett's game was fly like a hare down the wing, roasting fullbacks, turning them inside out, making them cry. And then, of course, Les would get these perfect crosses over to the big man in the middle. Was it maybe in the early days, Alan Clark, somebody we shared, didn't we, oh, with Leicester? Yes. Correct. Yeah. MacDonald was just a bit later than that. Malcolm MacDonald was your man. Did he play for Fulham or was he just your manager? He played in the very early uh, days. Didn't he start as a fullback, MacDonald? I think he did. Uh, did he go to... Um, Luton, did he go to then. Luton, didn't he? Luton yes. and then Luton. Newcastle. Yeah. Came back yeah. later as a manager in the Ernie Clay Time, yeah, at the yeah. time when I was a director, I was a director for two years with Ernie Clay and Alan Price from The Animals. He and I were, were both directors. And mm. I said, well, I couldn't give the club any money because I'd just gone through a very expensive divorce. But I would do fundraising things for them. So I did discos and things like that, you know, to raise money for the club. But another director and I, there was an FA inquiry into the running of the club, irregular payments. So the other director and I said, could we see the books? And Clay said, no. He said, well, we're directors of the club. We must be able to see the books. He said, well, you can't. And that's it. It was a complete, you know, one-man band, really. And on that basis, after two years, I, I resigned as a director, but continued as a supporter. And I discovered, actually, being a director of a football club, the less you know about the running of it, the more you enjoy it. You're absolutely right. Everybody thinks it's great, you know, and it's what you supposedly aspire to when you're young. And then when you get in that position, you realize it actually takes all the enjoyment away because you worry about it. You get accused of all sorts of things, you know, like get your wallet out and all these <laughs> sort of things. You know, you've got nowhere near enough money. And of course, quite often you're a complete victim of other people. In your case, <laughs> obviously Ernie Clay. The other memory I have of Fulham at that stage was there was that promotion race from what was then, I still think we're talking about Division Two days. Malcolm McDonald was your manager. Mm. We had Gordon Mill. We made a late run up the table. Fulham would have been probably there or thereabouts all season, came to the last Saturday, and we got ahead of you. We had to win. You were playing Derby away. Derby had to win to save themselves from relegation. We sort of fluffed our lines, only drew, and it went into extra time. The Derby crowd, conscious of the fact they needed to win to stand the division, invaded the pitch. It was a complete shambles that only football could come up with. And 90 actually... minutes, sorry to interrupt you, but the 90 yeah. minutes was never completed. And no. on the basis of that, Fulham missed out. It was scandalous. A lot of very bad feeling about that. No, we thought that was a very good result. <laughs> <laughs> the only time I felt much affection for Derby. And Malcolm McDonald was manager at that point. And actually, he did quite well and looked like the coming man as a manager. But after that, it rather fell apart for him, didn't it? I think he fell out with Clay, and I don't think Clay was too disappointed that we didn't go up. My feeling was, and the feeling of a lot of other supporters, that he wanted to run the club into the ground so that he could build flats on it. In a way, it's the, the best and the worst thing about the experience of Fulham, which I think is the best football experience in, in England, I'm careful to say, not including Dundee. But what's so lovely about it, that beautiful, beautiful position, is also the curse. 
because you're always going to get people with their eyes on that site and what well, what it could do for their personal profits. I think we're safe now, Patrick. I think those days have gone, hopefully. Fired sowed the seeds and handed over to a man who was much wealthier than he was. And we've now got, as you know, the wonderful Riverside Stand. I took mm. my seat there at the beginning of the season, and it's quite high up, and it's an incredible, over the stand where you are, the old yeah. Johnny Haynes stand, you can see Canary Wharf. You've got this most wonderful view of wonderful. London. You know, when I remember those bad days, I could never imagine that there would be a, a stand like that. One of the memories I have, David, of fired at Fulham was I went along. Leicester played you in a cup tie at some point. There was a period where we played you quite often in cup ties. I went along with Gary Lineker and he took one of his boys or two of his boys, maybe. And that evening, Sven Joran Eriksson came along to watch. And Sven Joran Eriksson came up. We were in the director's box. Sven Joran Eriksson came up, took his seat. And one of Gary's boys said, I need to get his autograph. So we said, oh, go down. I'm sure it'll be all right. So he went down with an autograph book and went up. And on the end of the row was fired. <laughs> and Gary's eldest boy motioned towards Eriksson. But instead, fired, grabbed the book. So I did and gave it back to him, <laughs> at which point the poor lad came back very much saying, who's that? I don't know him. Fayad was such a character, and he oh. was the only football club chairman that I know of who used to come round and do a lap of honour before the match. I used to introduce yeah. him to the crowd. He'd come up waving his black and white scarf, and he would always come over to me for a chat, and I had to hide the microphone behind my back <laughs> because I would say to him things like, got to win today, boss. And he would tell me what he would do to the team if they didn't win, you know. And I thought, God, <laughs> if this goes out to the crowd, this is going to be absolute dynamite. But I must tell you as well that at one time, one of the suits at Craven Cottage decided to sack me. And I was fairly early in my 18 years as the man on the mic. I was given the tin tack. And the reason given was that I was too nice. I would say to the supporters of Norwich City, for example, so sorry that you've been relegated, but we look forward to seeing you back here again in the future. And I'd say before the match, and a warm welcome to the supporters of Norwich City or you know whoever it was. So we don't want any of that. We want Fortress Fulham. We want it to be tribal. So I said, but this is not the ethos of Fulham. This is the friendly football club. Just do it our way. Anyway, I got sacked. He didn't know about it. That was a Saturday. On the Tuesday, I'm doing my radio show at the time, and I get a call, would you go and see Mohamed Al-Fayed after your show? So I go up to Harrods, and I'm shown into the boardroom by one of the other directors, and Fayed walks in, and he said, what's happened to you? So I said, well, you know, I've been sacked. And he said, well, I want you back for the match tonight. He said, what have you done? So I said, well, I, I bought myself a season ticket. So how much did you pay for it? So I said, oh, there's about 500 quid. So he, he left the boardroom. And I said to uh, Mark Collins, who's the other director, I said, where's he gone? So he said, I think he's gone to get some money for you. So <laughs> he came back with 500 quid. And bearing in mind the Neil Hamilton case of, you know, the cash for questions, yeah. I said to him, I don't think I should take cash from you with a name like Hamilton. <laughs> so he said to me, fucking, fucking 
Fucking Hamilton, fucking Hamilton. He said, why am I employing somebody called fucking Hamilton? I said, well, you're not. No, he said, you're back tonight. He said, and uh, how much will we be paying you? And I told him, and so he gave me a rise. Anyway, every time that I thought in the subsequent years of retiring, he kept giving me more cash. He'd bung, he'd bung me all these brown envelopes. <laughs> and and I just couldn't go, you know. It was only that sacking... It was only through that that I established the rapport with him. And he yeah. was the kind of man that if he liked you, he would follow you to the ends of the earth. And if mm. he didn't like you, he could be the worst enemy you ever had. I remember I only met him once, but when he was meeting strangers, he would shake hands. And as he shook hands, he would press into the palm of your hand something, a gift. And you would open it, and it was a smarty. And he said, it's a Viagra. This is for yeah. you this weekend. Yeah. Make, your, make your wife happy. I introduced him later to my wife, and he said to her, he said, oh, I thought he was gay. So <laughs> she said, no, no, no. She said, and by the way, the Viagra that you gave him, it really works. <laughs> it was the Smarties. Did he always do that? He always took a packet of Smarties if he was meeting strangers. Is it, that was right? his, it was his trademark. He was a joker and yeah. so funny. And the things that, the things that he said to me, before the match, were just you mm. couldn't print them. You talked a bit there about being too friendly to the opposition as a stadium announcer. Alan Burchinell did a similar job at Leicester, and he goes out on the pitch, and he always welcomes the opposition fans, which is most of the time appreciated. But once we were playing Manchester United, he went out on the pitch and he said to the Manchester United supporters, and by the way, don't forget on the way home, boys, when you get to the M1, take the signs for self. <laughs> Manchester United lodged an official complaint. I know Birch. What a great character. He's still True. around, is he? He is still Leicester. He still oh. goes to the games. He's supported not only by the club, but by a thing that they've bunged in to keep his heart going, a machine. Uh, yeah. So that when he wakes up in the morning, he gets a call from the hospital and says, by the way, you had another heart attack last night. But he's in great form as ever. He's 78 years old now. Top cap. I should think if you're a Leicester supporter, you'd have a few heart attacks, wouldn't you, probably? Oh, we do. We do, yeah. David, I'd like to go back to the origins. How old were you and how did it happen? How did you pledge a lifetime's allegiance to Fulham Football Club? Well, my mother lived in a flat at Ranla Gardens Mansions just next door to Putney Bridge Station. And on Saturday afternoon, you could hear the hubbub of the crowd going past, past the eight bells and down under the bridge and through the park to the ground. And my parents were divorced, but my mother's chap was Liverpudlian and he was a Liverpool supporter. And he took me to the first match at Fulham when Fulham played Liverpool. I think it's the time of Charlie Mitten. He was the oh, chap. yes. Who, Went very controversially to Bogota. Bogota. Yep. He was a winger. And so I think he was playing. I remember Charlie Mitten, Arthur Rowley. These are the first people that I, I remember there. My father was a Chelsea supporter, and he took me to probably my first football match at Stamford Bridge. I didn't like the ground much because in those days it had a greyhound track round it. Yes. And as a young boy, I was a long way away from the action. But at Fulham, you could get right behind the goal. In those days, it was open to the river. All you had were flags on the riverside. It was a very cold ground. The wind whipped in off the Thames. And I remember we used to have a mug of Bovril at half time to keep us warm. You mentioned one of the great names there, Arthur Rowley. Arthur yes. Rowley came to Leicester yes. from Fulham. I watched him play. I watched his last season at Leicester. 
And he, of course, became our second all-time goal scorer. Yeah, Arthur Rowley. He was a very prolific goal scorer. Prolific goal scorer. Got a really hard left foot shot. He just scored because he hit the ball really, really hard. He was my sort of first hero, if you like. He then was controversially allowed to go, went to Shrewsbury as sort of player manager and continued to score. And he's, in fact, the league's all-time record scorer, as we know. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, Fulham in the early days were always a selling club and they were known for letting their best players go. And we got a lot of cast-offs from Chelsea, players that Chelsea didn't want anymore. They made a nice little move down the road, you know, it's a couple of miles away. But Chelsea were always a much more successful club and we were the Cinderella club, really, of south-west London. You were talking about the openness of the ground or the closeness of the crowd to the pitch on the lack of humour in today's game and what I remember in almost I know it so well as a story I can't remember whether I heard it from somebody else or I was actually there when it happened but it was the time when Jimmy Hill and George Cohen were playing so it was 50s sometimes so the story goes that Cohen has the ball and Jimmy Hill is calling for it and he's calling for it he's calling for it and eventually Cohen gets tackled and gets dispossessed and a voice from the Fulham crowd calls out Cohen Cohen when the rabbi calls for the ball give it to him Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. We haven't mentioned Tommy Trinder, have we, either? Did you ever meet Tommy Trinder? Oh, yes, yes, of course, yeah. Tommy Trinder, you lucky people. He was the Fulham chairman. They had quite a show business board at one time. They had a chap called Chappie D'Amato, who was a band leader. And lots of show business people went. Honor Blackman was uh, a regular there. And her husband, Morris Kaufman, Harry Fowler. They just went there for fun. The football was never that serious. And there was always a comic side to it. But, yeah, I mean, I knew Jimmy Hill very well. And I knew Tommy Trinder quite well. He was our chairman when we got to the cup final in 1975. He was soon ousted in a boardroom coup. There was some story that somebody paid his income tax or something like that. Mm. There were always scandals at Fulham. There was one director just before I joined the board who committed suicide. He was running a property company and he put two bullets through his own brain, which when you think of it is quite a difficult thing to do. Eric Miller, wasn't it? Yes. He must have sacked Bobby Robson as manager because lovely man though Bobby Robson was. He reacted to the news of Eric Miller's demise without a great deal of sympathy, shall we say. Did he? Yeah. yeah. Tommy yeah. Trinder was reputed, of course, offered that £100 a week yeah. to Johnny Haynes. Yes. In his opinion, in the sure and certain knowledge that no one would ever lift yes. the minimum wage. <laughs> yes. And of course, once it was lifted, he had to then give Johnny Haynes, who I met later on in his life, Johnny Haynes went up to live in Scotland, of course. Yes. Ironically, later in his life, and I met him at Hugh McElvenny's birthday party, and I found him a a most charming bloke, actually, Johnny Haynes. Very shy, very shy. Yes, quite shy. Shy man. I had the honour of interviewing him in his house that he shared with his wife in Edinburgh, and Mm. they ran. He used to get up at, I think, three or four every morning, along with his wife, because they ran an office cleaning business. Yeah, His wife was an artist, actually, because the walls were completely covered in sort of oils and watercolours that she'd done. I said, you go down and keep in touch with the old Fulham people. And he said, oh, yes, once a year for the Bobby Keach Memorial Lunch. Do you remember Bobby Keach, David? Of course, yes. Keachy was a great character. I can remember Keachy 
explained to me that he'd been to what he described as a very posh hotel, the kind of hotel that served Kedigree for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> a quick Tommy Trinder story for you. He got into trouble with the FA for an illegal payment to Arthur Stevens, who was a great winger that we had, also sometimes played centre-forward, but scored a lot of goals as a winger. Tommy Trinder gave him, as a bonus, an overcoat. It's an illegal payment. (laughs) (laughs) What's the feeling about Johnny Haynes now? Do people look back at him as as our greatest player, as he were, with great nostalgia and affection? Or he was never going to win anything with Fulham. And did he not want to go to Spurs at the time in the early 60s when Spurs looked like being the team of the decade? When they took Mullery. Yeah, I think there were overtures. But in those days, I don't think players had a lot of say. And also there weren't any agents, you know, to broker the kind of deals that are brokered now. They really were like serfs, weren't they? They were treated very poorly and obviously paid very poorly and used to get a bus to the matches. Imagine that today. Yeah, I mean, that's what he said during that day in Edinburgh. He said we did want to go to Spurs. And he titled to He grew up in Holloway, didn't he, Up, up there? The yeah. area with you know a huge hotbed of Spurs fandom. You're quite right. I said, how, how do you get to the match? And he said, well, I'd get the Northern Line down to <laughs> so-and-so. I'd change. And then at Hammersmith, I'd get a bus along the Fulham Palace. That's right, yeah. And this is the best-paid footballer in Britain. Yeah. And I said, but wasn't it difficult, you know, with the crowd and all that? He said, no. He said, I never heard a word. He said, every now and again, one of them would say, have a good game today, Haynes. Yeah. Do you remember all the men in the crowd wore hats? Do you remember that? You look at the pictures of crowds in those days. Identical. All the the men wearing trilbies. Yeah, and many of them wearing collar and tie. That's in the south. They wore flat caps up north. I'll tell you what I remember about Saturday matches after the match at Craven Cottage. Fish and chips, the chippy, which I think is still there on the way home. And then the Pinkin, the evening paper at six o'clock after sports report, We'd pop out from the flat and get the paper, which at six o'clock was printed, delivered to Fulham, and contained the results, up-to-date league tables, and the report of at least the first half of the game. Isn't that incredible? That that could be done in that time, you know. It was quicker in Manchester. We got it at quarter past five. (laughs) At Dundee, we'd get it before the match started. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to Johnny Haynes, because he is somebody I I remember with great pleasure. I think he had quite a bad accident and broke at least one leg, if not two. And he never regained his place under Ramsey, because he was the fulcrum of the England side. In the late 50s, early 60s, England revolved Mm. around Johnny Haynes. And by the time Alf took over in early 63... Haynes no longer featured, and it was a very dramatic decline. It wasn't just the injury. I think he didn't fit into the kind of pattern of play that Alf wanted. Is that your understanding, David? Yes, I think that's pretty well right. He was always very frustrated by his colleagues who, you know, couldn't read the game like he did. It was his pinpoint passing. He always knew where players were, you know, to give the ball to. I think what George Cohen said about him was his incredible vision. You know, that's what he had that other players didn't have. And when he passed the ball so immaculately, he just knew where that player was in space. Yes. For him to be the leader of that team, that was an England team that I felt was absolutely terrifying. They beat Scotland 9-3. But they beat everybody about seven or eight, that team. And it was Brian Douglas was the right winger, then Haynes, then Bobby Smith, 
then Jimmy Greaves and Bobby Charlton. Jimmy Greaves, Bobby Charlton. I mean, just five people containing some of the greatest players, greatest forwards that ever played for England in the history of the FA. And Haynes was, as you rightly say, the one who was supposed to make it all tick. I've got a Bobby Charlton story for you. Oh, yes, please. I was playing at a charity match at Old Trafford against an ex Man U 11, which included Bobby Charlton. And it was only about seven or eight years after he'd retired. And he still had that rocket shot in both feet, you know. Yeah. We didn't have a brilliant goalkeeper, obviously. Showbiz goalkeeper, somebody like Jess Conrad, I think. <laughs> anyway, Bobby Charlton took this in-swinging corner kick with his right foot and he shot it right to the top of the net. So somebody, I think it was one of our players, was stupid enough and said to him, bit of a fluke there, Bobby. So he said, uh, oh, you, th you think it was a fluke to you? So in the second half, he did the same thing with his left foot. <laughs> <laughs> direct from a corner kick straight to the top of the net. This time, nobody said it was a fluke. Can you imagine what a thrill it was for people who played football not very well like me to mm. play in matches with people like Bobby Charlton? You know, I actually played with the England World Cup squad in 66. Alan Mullery had his testimonial at Fulham. This is, again, about eight years after 66, so uh, it's early 70s. So he said, I've got the England World Cup squad bar two, to play against an ex-Fulham 11. He said, I'm not going to ask another couple of pros, but I'm asking you and Jimmy Tarbuck, would you like to play for the England World Cup team? Well, I said, I think something good on the telly that night. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Tarby and I ran out in the red and white strip, and I've got a press cutting from the Fulham Chronicle that says something like, England scored first when Jack Charlton gave a fine ball to David Hamilton, who crossed, and Bobby Charlton rocketed into the back of the net. And people say to me, when was it that you played for England then? <laughs> <laughs> Craven Cottage, 1972. But, I mean, you've got that on your CV forever, an assist mm -hmm. to Bobby Charlton. Yeah, I always mm -hmm. thank Alan Mullery for that. He was a great yeah. player again, wasn't he, at Muller's. Yes, yeah. and tough with it. By the way, this will upset John, I think, but I remember a fantastic goal that Alan Murray scored against Leicester. At I remember Cottage. it very well. It won goal of the season. Yes. It was scored against Peter Shilton. It was a volley from about 30 yards. Yeah, I was going to say And it went that. in like a rocket. I <laughs> yes. do remember it. One of the best goals I've ever seen. Yes, it is on film if people want to go to that. I think you'll find that still on film. It was in a cup tie. I think it was yes. one all, and we won the replay at Filbert Street, David. Oh, you got your own back yep. in the end. <laughs> but it was a sensational goal. And Muller's, you know, epitomised lion-hearted English player, you know, never knew he was beaten. Just a great, great guy. We don't see him much at Fulham now. He seems to spend most of his time between Spurs and Brighton. Our loss, really. He was a successful manager, wasn't he, for Brighton for a time? Yes. He did pretty well. Did he Very get them into so. the Premier League or Cup Final or something like that? I think that? he did, he yes, got them he did. close, yeah. Then they went to Charlton. I don't think it went quite as well at Charlton, but... He always wanted the Fulham job, and somebody had promised him the Fulham job, and then they reneged on it, and they gave it to somebody else. Having said that, you know, in recent years, Patrick, you would agree with this, we've had some wonderful managers at Fulham. Oh, well, I was going to ask you. Kevin Keegan, Roy Hodgson, yeah. who was so 
so Fulhamish, so yeah. ripe for Fulham. Yeah. Of course, got us to Hamburg and that European final. Yeah, we've been blessed with wonderful managers. And I think Marco Silva is a great manager. I just think that the system for him now, when you have a season that begins and after the season has begun, people are going to take your players, uh, you know, before you even get to January. I think that's crazy. How can you train and plan for the season when you don't know who's going to be in your squad? I can never understand why this Premier League, the most successful and it would say professional league in the world, has this shambolic system where you can sell a season ticket to millions of fans, or hundreds, thousands of fans. And could you imagine buying a ticket for a play when you don't know who the actors are, when you don't know who the characters are? And that's what the Premier League clubs are asking fans to do. Mm. I think the window should close before the season starts. Is that a ridiculous thing to ask? No. We didn't used to have a window at all. You could swap during the season as it went on. And then it became clearer and clearer that that wasn't going to work. I think that came in about the same time as Bossman because the players had more freedom. I was in favour of that. I always felt that that stopped the players being exploited quite as much as they were. Well, Having then, said yeah. that, you've now got this window system, which doesn't seem to me to work very well. All the deals are done on the last day because everyone's hankering after the top price. And it goes on to the end of August. And then one year they said, oh, is it, it goes on to the first day of the following month because of yes. some bizarre reason. And then you've got, oh, it's not effective yet in Turkey or something like that. I do think if Turkey can declare UDI on it, why mm. can't we say why no? We? Our window closes the end of July because mm. you're bringing in players at the last minute. It's not fair to them. They haven't trained with the club at all. Their pre-season has probably been disrupted by the fact they probably know they're going to move and they don't trade properly. There's a lot wrong with where it is. I, personally, David, what is happening now with the big clubs actually controlling the agents and actually moving the players, putting the idea in players' heads that a club in Europe are after you, you must play in Europe, has done a lot of damage. I think it's ruined one or two players' careers. They've moved prematurely or they find at the end of the day they're moving to a club that actually isn't in Europe. And it is the big clubs who employ the agents. The system of clubs being allowed to pay the agents is completely wrong. The other thing that's wrong as well, John, is that a contract isn't a contract. And what Correct. happens is a year before the end of the contract, somebody like Mitrovic, who we've just lost, leaves and the club get 50 million or whatever it is. Yeah. But if he comes to the end of the contract, as I understand it, they don't get anything. Correct. So it's quite in their interest, not in the managers, obviously, he wants the best players, yeah. but yeah. for the club to want the player to go. So the whole system is stupid, crazy. really. It's a crazy. crazy system. But they have the players on the balance sheet, you see. That's one of the problems. They're allowed to put players as assets on the balance sheet. You know, they're borrowing on the basis that the player is worth X. And it influences players when they get there. We had this with Harry Kane at the beginning of this season. They got something like 100 million. Yet at the end of the season, he's worth nothing to them. Frankly, if I were the player's agent and they said, oh, we're selling you for 100 million, I would be saying, hold on, I'm worth 100 million. 
That means actually you've been underpaying me by that amount. I'll wait till the end of my contract. And then I can have 100 million. So there are a lot of faults in the system, as it were. I think players have always been treated badly by clubs. And the transfer system, of course, has been at the heart of most of the corruption. You know, agents based in Monaco. And in the old days, there were bungs going to managers through offshore agents and so on and so on. No. Which was completely wrong. No. <laughs> <laughs> On a happier note, let me ask David, given the fact that you watched Charlie Mitten after he came back from Bogota, you've seen a lot of Fulham sides. I mean, is there one particular collection of 11 individuals who, as a team, that you're most nostalgic for, that, that the one that was closest to your heart? Well, I think the team that got to Hamburg, obviously that was our greatest moment, and that was a terrific team that Roy Hodgson had put together and we were brilliant a bit like the cup final in 75 brilliant through all the rounds and mm. then just didn't turn up really on the day that was very what patrick and i would call fulhamish you know that's the expression <laughs> yes. so typical of uh, so many fulham fans have been through down the years you know the juventus game the hamburg game there were so many highlights where we just absolutely rose to the occasion and just couldn't do it when it came to the final hurdle. So that that was very disappointing. I was talking to a QPR fan the other day, and he was ribbing me about Fulham. So I said, who's in the Premier League? And then he said to me, well, what have Fulham ever won? And I was a bit stuck there. And then he told me about QPR winning, was it the League Cup or something they won, wasn't it, years yes, ago? Yes, Monday yes. March, yeah. It got me there, and I didn't have a lot of answer to that, unfortunately. Well, to go back to the Juventus game, we'd lost 3-0 in Turin, 3-1 in Turin, I think, David. And I arrived at the ground late and was still sort of waiting to go through the turnstile. There was just one chap in front of me when the game kicked off, and they scored to make it 4-1 yep. on aggregate right. within two minutes of the start, I think. Yeah. And the bloke in front of me heard that muted roar that tells you that the away team have scored. Yeah. And he said, oh, this is no good. I'm going home. And turned and walked away. I would love to meet him sometime. And ask Did he him. actually go? He, he, he actually, actually bustled past me and walked on, down Stephen's yeah. Road, never yeah. to see it. And I just feel so sorry for him. <laughs> we needed to score four goals that night, which mm. against a, a team like Juventus was just a mountain to climb. Yes. And we did it. And that goal going in... Uh, in with oh. David, I was right in that corner section, you know, that hospitality section yeah. in, in the old corners. Mm. And I could see as, as Clint Dempsey dinked it and the goalkeeper was running in a panicky way and you thought, this is going in, this is going in. And it took an age to go in, which just it made did. it all the better. <gasps> what a moment. What a moment. Probably the most wonderful night at yeah. Craven Cottage. And I've never heard a roar like that. I've never heard an atmosphere like that that there was that night. And you just went home sort of pinching yourself saying, you know, can this really be true? Oh, wonderful stuff. Anyway, we could talk all day, all night. And I certainly could talk to David Hamilton or listen to David Hamilton speaking about his beloved football club. And I'd like to thank you, David, very much for taking the time off after already doing your Boom Radio show to speak to us. We really, really do appreciate it. I'm a very inexperienced host and Colin Schindler will remind me of the housekeeping that I need to say before we say goodbye. Will he we tell us to... what's on Schindler's list? <laughs> but you never heard that one before, Colin. No, oh, I've never I... done it before, so it's new to me. It might be old to him. I'd also like to thank as well our regular 
colleagues, John Holmes and Colin himself, and our producer, Paul Kobrak, as always tirelessly working away. Now, Colin, remind me, we've got to say to our listeners that we do want to know your feedback. Please always write to us at, what is it, football ruined my life, all one word. At gmail.com. At gmail.com. So please let us know. And apart from that, I'd just like, as I say, especially to thank David for being such a brilliant guest and everybody else. And thank you for listening to Football Ruined by Life. And we'll see you next time. Bye.